This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is John Schaffner, Emmy Award-winning production designer and art director. John has designed some of television's most iconic sets, including Friends, Two and a Half Men, and The Big Bang Theory. Everybody watches Friends, but everybody is that, how can they afford to live in such a big apartment? Well, let me tell you. John is a proud alum of the University of Montana and sponsor of our annual Odyssey of the Stars gala event. John, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Uh, I grew up in Missoula, Montana, right. born and raised. My father had a couple of interesting businesses. He he uh, started at the university, but then, of course, in 1940s, you didn't always have to get a degree. And he was an accountant, but then he decided to open his own appliance uh, company, okay. and he was a propane dealer. And so he had a very successful business because the 50s was booming times for appliances and things. But then he decided it really wasn't working out for him. He wasn't joyful about it. Mm-hmm. So he sold the business and didn't work for a year. And, well, someone ran into him at church and said, hey, the university's shutting down their book bindery. You should buy all the old book binding equipment. Interesting. So my dad went, oh, that could be an interesting business. So he opened uh, Schaffner's University Book Bindery, and now it's just Schaffner's Bindery. My brother still operates. It's been in business since 1964. So that was my dad's business. And my mother, she was a woman of remarkable abilities uh, and many careers, uh, married much later in life because uh, she was 38. She had come out from Minnesota to run the dining room at Lake McDonald Lodge, and then they hired her to manage the chalet at the Big Mountain Ski Resort the second year that it was in business. Okay. And then, of course, my dad was up there going skiing, and they were snowed in, and my parents met, and isn't that romantic? And here you are. And here I am. (laughs) And was going to the University of Montana always kind of the top choice for you, or like what was your path to, uh, to academic study? Well, academic studies were really very important and stressed a lot by my parents. And I actually began my studies here at nursery school at the University of Montana okay. with my first colors of crayons and things and continued through here being very constantly aware. And, and of course, my parents were good friends of many of the faculty and, and administration at the school. And I graduated from Sentinel High School, but in my class, uh, the teachers said, well, John, you can go anywhere you want. And so I followed the idea of going to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, where my high school drama teacher, Margaret Johnson, had gone. Okay. And my parents thought, well, they could let me go that far away because uh, I had an aunt and uncle who lived in the neighborhood of the school. (laughs) Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have let me escape. Sure. But one year later, you know, uh, funding for education is always a challenge, mm-hmm. and it seemed a better idea to come back and live at home, be dropped off at school with a paper bag lunch, and go to the University of Montana, right. which uh, at the time I resented deeply. However, it took me about a year to understand it was the best deal I ever could have imagined. I had no reason to have to really work for money, per se. I would do odd jobs, work in my dad's book bindery, or run spotlights for a show and pick up 50 bucks. And, of course, that's when 50 bucks was 50 bucks. Yeah, that's a lot. And uh, was able to, you know, just really pursue what I loved to do, which was work in the theater. 
And what sparked that interest? Because you got interested in the theater in high school, oh, right? Oh, yeah, early, early yeah. on. I, I started doing sort of imaginary play sets when I was in grade school. Okay. And uh, I'm not sure just where it, it came from. My parents were would take me to plays, I remember, at a very young age. Probably I was seven or eight, six, I don't know, in the university theater balcony watching a production of Carousel and later o- Oklahoma. And uh, I was intrigued by make-believe. Mm. And uh, living a little bit out in the country with just one brother, sometimes we had to do a lot of make-believe things and go out in the woods and imagine things. And I love to read and imagine. And then high school allowed me immediately the opportunity to get engaged. And I also enjoyed performance work at the time. But I pretty much gave that up about my sophomore, junior year at the university. I did... I think the last role I played was the cow and gypsy at Big Fork. Okay. Uh, yeah. And designed and that was this, enough for you. And designed the sets and costumes. I said, you know what? I think I should stick with what I do best. You know, sometimes that's I think uh, a challenge for young people growing up to learn how to listen to yourself about. Okay, I think this is something I'm better at doing, even though I might like doing something else. I can like to do this too, and I'm better at it, so I better stick with that. And so I stuck with with it, and uh, after graduation, I really, from University of Montana, I really didn't have a real specific career goal. I had options to either stay in Montana and work the local theater scene, not make a living, and perhaps work in an interior design situation. But faculty here were supportive and said, you know, graduate school. So I applied and went to, uh, was fortunate enough to get into Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh where I got my Master of Fine Arts degree. Yeah. So straight from undergrad into a master's yeah. program. Yeah, that was very much the tradition in the in the 70s. Okay. No year off. No. Nobody did that No then. gap year. No gap years. And then how did you kind of break into the business? Well, I did a year at the Seattle Rep after graduation, and then my partner Joe Stewart and I moved to New York when he finished and uh, started doing plays. Okay. And I had a big break in Manhattan. I was... Uh, I was found in the scene shop at uh, at the New York Shakespeare Festival, toiling away, painting scenery and moving props. And I was introduced to director Wilfred Leach, who then brought me on board to become his designer on the production of The Taming of the Shrew wow. and, uh, with Meryl Streep and Raul Julia in Central Park and All's Well That Ends Well. So my story about Meryl is we were on the uh, subway going up to the park because we were all basically, she was still a young, young, poor, starving artist. Sure. And she turned to myself and Wilfred Leach and said, you know, I think I might end up being a movie star. Really? I just finished this movie called The Deer Hunter. And well, it's not out yet, but I really liked it. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, every once in a while I see I used, would see Meryl Street in, uh, in Los Angeles at the Golden Globes or somewhere and reminder of those stories of working in Central Park back in 1978. But, you know, we were working in, in uh, uh, theater, but we were starting to get thinking about recorded media. Okay. So we got involved with a couple of productions with public TV, which were shot on film, single camera style. And uh, we said to each other one day, you know, before it's too old, we're too old and it's too late, let's see what Hollywood's all about. Yeah. So we bought a 1965 Thunderbird convertible, the same color as Thelma and Louise's, but before they did. Oh, gosh. And drove to Hollywood. Wow. And uh, never stopped working, not for pr- practically not a New York minute. But, you know, I, I, we moved to Hollywood, and one thing we never thought about was what kind of a career we wanted in Hollywood. 
and we stumbled sort of casually into an arena of work that is rather unique. And I call that, we call that multi-camera entertainment. So that's your talk show, game shows, award shows, sitcoms, variety, special event kind of things, as opposed to single camera work, which is, you know, movies, you know, feature work, episodic television, where they shoot the product with one camera. Now they shoot with a few more, but with many setups. Multi-camera is much more like a live event and much more like live theater in, in many respects. Studio audience. Yeah. I mean, we, we the sitcoms had studio audiences, et cetera. But, you know, I still had to make a living, and I wasn't going to jump into being a production designer right away. A production designer is a, the lucky person who gets to read the script or hear about what the show is going to be and start imagining what it's going to look like and put it in your head, put it down on paper with sketches or, or research materials and meet with the producers and directors and talk about what you think the show should look like. And they respond, hopefully, positively to your uh, suggestions. And with collaboration, you start creating all the things that you need to do to communicate. Paper models, colored elevations, now it's mostly done computer imagery work in meetings and collaborating with the other artists who are on the project, a lighting, camera director, costumes, everybody involved. And, and as you're imagining a new world based on your reading of a script and the characters, what are some of the other considerations? You're, you're probably trying to imagine these people's world, but also you're thinking of a stage and interface with an audience. Like the, there's some logistical and probably budgetary constraints you're thinking about too, maybe? Well, the technical restraints, you know, in many respects, multi-camera work is very traditional in terms of the theater. There's an audience. Okay. But, uh, you know, we've we tried to expand and, and change that over the years, but it's very falls in line with good theatrical training. So uh, when people talk to me about going into production design in entertainment, I say, well, get a good theater degree first. It teaches you how to read a script, how to do research, how to to understand the story, the time, the period, and the visual elements mm-hmm. that that you need to bring to it. As for the money part, well, I have to say that although I did many shows with you know tight budgets, your imagination and you hope your collaboration will allow you to solve that problem. But I we were fortunate enough to work on many shows where really money was not a consideration. Yeah. And and sometimes I would approach a project being a little conservative, being concerned about the resources, and then I would get hollered at by the executive producer or the creator of the project saying, I don't want you to think about money, John. Chuck Lorre was in particular at that. He'd, he would just get rabid at me sometimes about Stop worrying about the money. Sure. I and he's two and a half, two and a half two men. Two and a half men, and a bunch Big Bang big Theory. And, yep. Oh, yeah. I had a great run with Chuck. We worked together closely for 25 years. So you mentioned not having that budget constraint, but like a show like Friends, do you know it's going to have a big budget right from the start? Oh, or? no. Friends yeah. was Friends was, was budgeted by the studio and the network uh, in their collaboration of who gets to pay how much for okay. and, and who spends how much uh, as a very mid-level expense when we started. Mm -hmm. And I don't think some of us had a sense that this had real potential, and as we used to say in the theater legs, that it would run. Yeah. The the question was, would they get a good time slot? You know, how would it work out? So the first year we kind of fumfered along, did pretty well. But over the summer that, you know, the 
ratings increased in the reruns. It was discovered. And by season two, we were really rolling. And then shortly thereafter that, uh, in season two, we moved to a much bigger stage. The network and the studio felt very positive about the show. And the money started rolling in again. But when we started it, the story didn't ask for to be a lot of money to be spent to make right, the picture. Right. It was young people in New York surviving. And of course, there have been over the years many, you know, this was 20, almost 30 years I ago. Know, a long time ago. I'm like terrified to think that. And oh, it's having a bit of a resurgence. Oh, like yeah. My daughter just, and her whole age cohort are way into Friends. Right everybody now. watches Friends, but the, everybody is that, how oh, can they afford to live in such a big right, apartment? Right. Well, let me tell you. It was a, We imagined it as very much like the apartment that we had lived in in Manhattan in an undervalued neighborhood on 14th Street, and we lived in a six-floor walk-up. Now, in New York, at the time, they could build buildings up to six stories high without an elevator. So a six-floor walk-up by the floor just gets cheaper and cheaper sure. and cheaper. Yeah, walk-up meaning no elevator. No elevator. Six flights of stairs, and these aren't just typical eight-foot-high c- ceilings. You know, It's a climb. Yeah. So that's where we imagined it. And, and the producers, uh, Kevin, Marta, and David, agreed, okay, that sounds cool. And so the first uh, pilot, first rehearsals, they, the cast would come through the door. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old barefoot in the park joke for anybody who remembers that play by Neil Simon. But we quickly realized that joke would become very old. Right. So we moved him down to the fourth floor and never talked about it again. And so the reason that it was a big apartment for cheap, it was rent controlled and it was grandmothers. Sure. So that was, uh, but it was really about that kind of a, a older building, tenement space, Manhattan, what would be affordable, at least in our minds. But I must say, when we rented it in 1977, it was only $250 a month wow. in New York. Yeah. Today, I think that apartment would probably go for 2800 because it's still a six-floor walk-up. We'll be back to my conversation with John Schaffner after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, on August 11th, A New Angle and The Right Question are teaming up for our first live event at the Wilma Theater. Justin and I will be helping the legendary David James Duncan launch his new novel, Sunhouse, a book 16 years in the making. Lauren and I will chat with David. David will read, and renowned singer-songwriter Jeffrey Foucault will illustrate Sunhouse in music. Montana Public Radio presents this evening of story, song, and conversation, August 11th at the Wilmot Theater in Missoula. Get your tickets now at logjampresents.com. This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to New Angle. I'm speaking with Emmy Award-winning set designer John Schaffner about his work on some of television's most iconic shows. So when you have a show like that or, or some of these other shows that have, have run for many seasons, you create the world at the onset. What is your sort of involvement on the day-to-day production, production oh, wow. and then season to season? Oh, wow. You know, the pilot, okay, you got that done. You designed 
you know, five, six basic sets. Although now, oftentimes, pilots, they want 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the budget's tight. But uh, as soon as you finish it and there's the order for your series, you get the script for the first episode. And, oh, look, they're in a parking garage. They went to the grocery wow. store. They went to the restaurant. And they another friend of theirs has moved into town. So all of a sudden, you're affronted with how to fit this many more sets on stage along with your quote, basic sets that are going to stay okay. up all the time. There's constant work every episode. Sure. And you pray every once in a while for that episode that they call a bottle episode, which means there's no swing sets. The swing sets are the new sets that come in every week. Okay. You know, one of the shows that I did that was very aggressive in swing sets was Dharma and Greg. Mm. We would often have five or seven swing sets a week. And as as the years went on, the shows became much more engaged in having lots of sets. We did crazy stunt sets on on all of my shows. Yeah, I mean, it years. would seem like as a show enjoys some success, they can do crazier things. We like built, when friends went to Europe and all all the stuff. Well, like we actually that. did go to Europe. We yeah. did go to England, and we did you know build scenery there. But for friends, at one point, they handed me the script. You know, like two weeks before the finale of the season, and oh, we're going to go to Las Vegas and we need you to build Caesar's Palace. Mm. So we had to take down the coffee house, take down some of the bleachers. We had to rearrange the stage. And I was ordering wallpaper and carpenters were building and it was it was frantic. And on on the Two and a Half Men, they all of a sudden to have John Cryer's character, you know, stuck on the highway of uh, Highway 101 up the coast in Malibu in a terrible storm and be washed away. We built a mountain that was 40 feet tall and 150 feet long in a parking lot at Warner Brothers. Wow. And covered it, you know, built it out of wood, covered it with metal, covered it with concrete, (laughs) covered it with mud, covered it with plants, had a huge barrel that rolled to dump huge amounts of water down this mountain. But that's just one part of our career because that was really the, the, the storytelling. I mean, I didn't start doing sitcoms till I was 42. Okay. My first part was really, after moving to Hollywood, very much was music variety entertainment. Mm -hmm. I helped Bob Banner and Sam Riddle create a show for Al Massini, he's executive in New York, called Star Search. Okay. And And you named Star Search, I named Star Search. And that was was my baby. I loved that show so much. It was, you know, a classic talent competition show. And it was going to be called Talent Challenge. And I kept going, that's such a hard, too many L's. And I was with the producer. We were having a glass of wine after work one day. And I said, you know what, Sam, this show is just, I, it's got to come up with a name. It's a talent search. It's, we're looking for stars. It should be called Star Search. There and you go. Boom. He said, sit, don't move. And he ran downstairs and called New York and the lawyers, and they immediately registered the name. I didn't get any extra money for coming up with a name, but I did get 12 years of work out of it and met so many up-and-coming people like Drew Carey and Ray Romano and Rosie O'Donnell in the comedic fields, Justin Timberlake as a little boy, wow. Brittany. The list goes on of the talent that came through those doors. And mm-hmm. what a joy it's been to see so many of those people go on to such great success in the entertainment business. And so those sorts of variety shows, late night talk shows, etc. The sets there, I would presume, are somewhat simpler. Like, but there's there's a lot of logistical issues and traffic flow to manage and performance issues. 
how do you make the transition from that into more complex sets and worlds, essentially? Star Search was basically a basic set. We had some changes every week, a few things for the specific acts that we would come up with. So it wasn't a particularly challenging that way. Mm-hmm. But things like the American Music Awards, oh, where yeah. we would have between 19 and 21 individual acts in the, in the one broadcast meant an enormous amount of wagons and platforms and scenery. And when we first started doing it, it was much more dependent on physical scenery, you know, steel, wood, paint. Sure, uh, structures. Structures. Um, But as time progressed, remarkably, the advent of the digital screen technology. We used to fool around with it in rear screen projection when we could manage it and had the space Mm -hmm. um, with the projectors and the throw, as we call it. But the LED screen technology started out kind of clunky, but it has gotten so incredible that just about every show now that you see, a good portion of the visual environment is created digitally and is on screen technology. So a designer, when we were doing our last uh, AMAs, we would it became a configuration of screens, was a great part of the design, the stage layout. And then the individual elements that would come in in front of the screen technology. But we no longer flew in different kinds of backdrops or did full, you know, screened imagery of, as I said, wood and paint, et cetera. So it it changed radically. And now, like when you've watched the Oscars, anything you see now, the, the Grammys, all of these shows are so dependent on screen technology. I don't know if we're getting weary of it perhaps a little bit yeah because there's sometimes it's just too much information right the screen enables a level of production that maybe overwhelms us when we started using the screen technology as production designers we were very engaged with the image choice choicing shall we say Mm -hmm. choosing selecting finding but as anything gets more and more complex we almost ended up with another whole department that came that the producer had to produce another show oh, wow. as the background. Yep. And so we would participate at some level of reviewing and matching and working with that, that. but we had there was a whole nother team that was creating a lot of that and most artists now come to the show with a package of material that they have created either for their tours or for their videos. Lots of times we would, in the early days, we, oh, you have a music video? We'll play that in the background while you sing in front of it, you mm-hmm. know? So the artists now have a great deal of technology, digital imagery that they just come to the stage with. Sure. You know? I would assume that's the case at some of these political conventions that you've produced oh, as well. Yeah. Those sets, talk about those that experience of producing an event or a set for an event like that. We got hired on because we were we were working with a producer in New York doing um, the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular with the Rockettes. He wanted us to be engaged with, he, and he'd reproduce the Republican convention. And all of our friends were working on the Democratic convention. So we're like, well, sure, this sounds interesting. Yeah. So, like, two years out, you're hired. They have no clue who the candidate's going to be. So you meet with the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee chairman and the leadership there, and they want to guide you into something. So I think it was the first one that we did for George Bush Jr. And they, oh, we want something really modern and, you know, hip and cool. So we came up with something that was very angular and kind of spaceshipy thinking. And I kept thinking, this is so weird. I don't know where we're going with this. <laughs> and of course, time goes by and we start getting, you know, how much is that going to cost? And then, 
oh, look, it's George as the candidate. Well, who knew? So we met with his staff, and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not our George. Oh, we want it. And this is where it got, this is where it gets a little strange. They said, we needed to look more like a living room. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't know if you want to do that because which Norman Rockwell painting are you going to get the rights to to hang behind his head and make you crazy watching it for four days? She says, well, I know, but that's what we think it should feel like. I said, well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things that we have to accommodate on this environment. It's like 200 feet wide. It's 70 feet tall. It's three times bigger than the Metropolitan Opera. I'll tell you what, we'll use true, honest materials for the stage environment. So we used a real wood floor, real stone on the walls behind. Everything was a real material. So I said, at least we can be uh, represent what you believe is his honesty with honest materials. Makes sense. So we're choosing things like that. Yeah. I, you know, and then, of course, his, his second time around at Madison Square Garden, they wanted a, a, a little more grandiose kind of thing. So we knobbed a bit from federal architecture and columns and things like that because he was the president. Absolutely. Kind of, you know, that we've just made another presidential space. And they wanted him to be more accessible to the audience. So we built this long runway with like a lollipop end. And he he was going to come out there and then be more surrounded. So we build all these stairs around the stage. So it looks like, oh, anybody could go up and talk to him. Well, they never show you on camera that there's a big plexiglass wall around that. Right, right. So nobody could walk up these stairs. But Joe had to meet with with George, uh, and uh, they were on the stage. And the the stage manager said, well, we just don't know how to tell him, Joe. you got to tell him. you got to tell him that if the lectern doesn't come up through the floor, then then he should stop walking. <laughs> and so Joe had pulled him aside and walked him over and said, you see this hole in the ground? This is what's coming up. Right, now, don't fall in there. Don't fall in it. Now, just know that there's 10 guys down there working really hard, so it probably is not going to happen. But if for just one nanosecond it isn't there on time, it will be there. So take a breath. So it's like, oh, good, Joe, you're directing the president. So you should take a moment and mention Joe Stewart. He's your life partner and your business partner. A That's long correct. time yep. collaboration with we, so many layers to it. Talk we about. met. We met at school in 1974, yeah. Yeah. and uh, in the summer of '75, we said, "You know what? It seems like we should just stick this out together and see what happens in life." And uh, it was a very fortuitous moment. I think part of our relationship has worked because we are generally in the same business and we were never competitive with each other. Okay. We were always supportive and we had considered settling in Seattle and uh, I was working there while Joe was finishing and I called him and said, you know, Seattle is not big enough for the two mm. of us. Right. You know, there's only there's only two places, New York or Los Angeles. So we said, well, let's let's try New York. We we really started working together with David Copperfield. Okay, he was the guy who came uh, and found us through a friend and and hired me. And I went to him and I said, "Okay, David, I'm I'm really involved doing the finale of Star Search. We've got a lot of shows doing. Joe, my partner, will be co-designing this." And David said, "Well, as long as I you know can find you," and he was willing to it. Well, David just fell in love with Joe. So we would design things together in our studio, which we had uh, built on studios in our homes. We only had two places in L.A. where we would have three to five assistants working full time. Sure. 
and we would generate the concepts and the designs together and then Joe would you know or he would take something and run with it and then supervise the that design crew especially after I started becoming more involved with as much sitcom work Stay tuned for part 2 of my conversation with John Schaffner next week Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.